American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project, Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York Graduate Center. This talk was given to New York City teachers as part of a professional development seminar at the Graduate Center. Okay, I'm really happy to be here this morning. This is a fun subject to talk about, and it's also one that's particularly timely since the questions of how you interpret the Constitution, which really didn't exist when I was in college, you know, at the dawn of time 40 years ago, are now really front and center. When I was in college and when I was in law school, which I went through after college, nobody had any doubts that the living Constitution was the appropriate way to approach the meaning of the document. That's changed in the last 40 years, and we've seen the return of an older mode of interpretation, the one that often gets called originalism, um, that people thought had really disappeared. But, you know, things keep coming back. And so nowadays we find ourselves faced with this really quite active debate <clears throat> that, as Leah suggested, um, is something that comes up in every Supreme Court nomination and the hearings on the nomination, um, and that's how you should interpret this document. The original intent boom, obviously, is sponsored by people with a certain set of political ideas, and so is the living Constitution. The Constitution is a political document, and there is no neutral position on this. You either take one side or the other, or you know, sort of try to split the difference. But one way or another, it's a political option. And so telling students uh, about this is a bit problematic because you have to be careful not, I suppose, to be too political in your comments. Nevertheless, you can't really help this. The living constitution notion was not one that the founders, uh, those mythic guys in white wigs, so on and so forth, uh, actually thought highly of. If they had expressed the notion that the Constitution changed over time to keep up with changing circumstances and so on, it's likely that there would have been even more opposition to the adoption of the Constitution than there was. And on the handout, under Article 5 of the Constitution, I've included a brief passage from Alexander Hamilton's Federalist Number 78. And that pretty much expresses the official view at the time of adoption as to what the proper manner to interpret the document was. It doesn't give you specifics, but it does say that if there are going to be big changes and so on and so forth, they have to be done in the same way that the adoption of the Constitution was done. You have to go back to the people and ask them for their approval. You can't do this. Uh, with the Supreme Court, which nobody in 1787 was thinking about as a powerful institution to begin with. Uh, more likely, this is designed to tell people that we're not going to allow the chief executive to make changes on his own say-so. It absolutely has to go back to the people, the source of all power, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, Alexander Hamilton is a man who says one thing one year and another thing the next year. And when Alexander Hamilton actually acquired power as Secretary of the Treasury uh, after 1789, 
Uh, he did things that led many people to wonder whether he was actually changing the Constitution on his own say-so. And his willingness to read the Constitution loosely, this is this old difference between strict construction and loose construction, his willingness to read the Constitution loosely suggested that he was perfectly prepared to twist the document, and I use that term in quotation marks, twist the document in any way his policy objectives required. So even among the founders, the notion that there was one you know, sort of standard principle that they would apply and they'd stick to it is really open to question. And while Hamilton's line in Federalist 78 was actually useful in the ratification campaign, it wasn't necessarily the one that people stuck with. The next quotation comes from John Marshall's decision in McCullough against Maryland, an 1819 case involving the constitutionality of the Second Bank of the United States. And that was an issue that had been up and down all, all over the place since the chartering of the First Bank of the United States in 1791. At the end of the opinion, John Marshall says, we must never forget that it is a constitution we are expanding. This provision is made in a constitution intended to endure for ages to come and consequently to be adapted to the various crises of human affairs. And this statement by John Marshall in 1819, which legal scholars would refer to as dictum, it's not something that's necessary to decide the case. It's a kind of comment along the way that he's making. He's throwing out these big ideas, so on. This statement by John Marshall is, in effect, the sort of classic point of origin of the notion of the living Constitution. This idea that the Constitution is adapted to the various crises of human affairs, so that as times change, as things come up, and so on, the Constitution is capable of meeting those challenges because it's interpreted in ways that are responsive. It's not confined to you know, just exactly what people thought uh, originally. And so Marshall, who was very big on the Constitution, obviously, and big on the Union and big on the United States, is giving you this vision of a, a charter that's capable of growing and changing uh, over time. And that's the quotation. Those two lines from Marshall are the quotations that people always quote when they're talking about the living constitution. You know, a constitution we are expanding, meaning that the constitution is not just a legal contract, as other people would argue. It's a special kind of document. And because it is this special kind of foundational document that was created theoretically with a conscious intent that it could be adaptable, that it could you know, respond to the kinds of challenges that changing events and so on pose. Because it is a constitution and not just a contract, it requires different modes of interpretation. If you interpret the constitution as a simple contract, then you have to find out what the original intent of the parties was. And it's, the meaning of the contract is limited by the intent of the people who joined in the contract. But a constitution is not necessarily that kind of a document. It's what Marshall is hinting at here. Well, not just hinting, saying 
here. And so it requires this more expansive mode of interpretation. A hundred years after John Marshall, Oliver Wendell Holmes, in a case called Missouri against Holland in 1920, also had things to say about this issue. Um, Missouri against Holland is a, it's not a case that you probably have ever heard of, but it's actually very important. It's about treaties. And in this case, it was a treaty involving the protection of migratory birds, uh, which you know doesn't sound like it's a big deal, but was actually something much on people's minds. There had been several attempts to get legislation through Congress, and the Supreme Court hadn't looked favorably on it because it seemed to go outside the Commerce Clause and so on. So finally, the migratory bird fanciers got um, the government to uh, sign a treaty with the Canadians about protecting these waterfowl and other things that were flying around up there and didn't locate themselves solely in one state. And people, after uh, Holmes's decision in Missouri against Holland, have always worried that the very expansive reading of the treaty power here could mean, ultimately, that if the government wanted to, it could sign a treaty that would abolish most uh, human rights and various other kinds of things like that. To, to people of a, a later date, this seems like, some people at any rate, this seems like a frightening decision. But at any rate, Holmes says, with regard to that, we may add that when we are dealing with words that also are a constituent act, so it's this notion of constitution as a special kind of document, uh, like the Constitution of the United States, we must realize, uh, realize rather, that they have been called into life, uh, sorry, that they have called into life uh, uh, being, the development of which could not have been foreseen completely, right? So it had to make provisions for things that couldn't be anticipated, could not have been foreseen completely by the most gifted of its begetters, so even the fanciest founders, like James Madison and so on, couldn't have foreseen what the Constitution would be required to do, the situations it would be required to meet. It was enough for them to realize, or to hope, uh, that they had created an organism. It has taken a century and has cost uh, their successors much sweat and blood to preserve that that they created, uh, oh, I'm sorry, to preserve that they created a nation. That somehow doesn't sound right. I may not have, uh, I may have left out a word. Anyway, the case before us must be considered in the light of our whole experience and not merely in that of what was said a hundred years ago. So history, not just 1787, but the history of 1787 1865, 1900, so on and so forth, has to be taken into account, says Holmes. The treaty in question does not convene any prohibitory words to be found in the Constitution. So what Holmes is saying is that, you know, it has to be specifically prohibited in order for it to be unconstitutional if, in fact, you know, our changing times and understanding and so on uh, require a somewhat different approach from the one the founders took. Unless the founders absolutely forbade something, it's not a problem. And believe me, the founders were worried a lot about a lot of things, but they weren't worried about migratory birds. 
No one imagined in 1787 that the United States would be signing treaties about that kind of thing. It's just, you know, conservation laws were not on their uh, minds. Uh, but Holmes says the Constitution is capable of reaching those situations and allowing for that kind of development. And that, in some ways, is probably the most elaborate statement in a Supreme Court decision of just what the living Constitution might be. There are a number of reasons, and I'll go over some of these briefly with you, why this living Constitution notion is not only, you know, one would almost imagine a little too obvious, I mean, come on, but why the contrary notion, originalism, really doesn't work very well. And some of these are a little more technical than might have occurred to you. It's not just that an originalist reading confines us to 1787 and, you know, we couldn't cope with that in the world of 2010. And believe me, uh, if we really went back to 1787, we wouldn't probably have a standing army, you know, so on and so forth. It, almost everything that goes on today that even the most conservative of Republicans like uh, was not in the minds of the founders. Things have changed that much. But there are other reasons why originalism doesn't really work very well. And the most important of those is that we really don't know very much about the original intent of the founders. There's only one real document about what went on at the Constitutional Convention. The Constitutional Convention passed a uh, resolution at its beginning that people couldn't write to anybody about what was going on. They had to be absolutely closed mouth about everything they were doing until the document was finished. And so there is no sort of strain or, or sort of group of letters that come out from members of the Constitutional Convention writing to their friends. And almost nobody kept a diary. And the couple of diaries that were kept with one exception uh, are really fragmentary, so they're not really very good for anything. The one person who actually tried to keep a record of what was going on was James Madison. And we do have James Madison's notes. He realized that these were going to be important. He took steps to preserve them, and he allowed them to be published, but only after his death, interestingly enough. So they weren't published until 1836, after 1836, when he died. The problem with Madison's notes is that they're very incomplete. Madison didn't know shorthand, and people have done experiments that show that you can really take, if you're listening to somebody speak, and you're just taking notes in longhand the way most of you are now, right? I assume nobody's doing shorthand. You can basically get about 20% of what's being said. So. 80% of what was said at the Constitutional Convention is lost. We just don't have that. Is it the important 80%? How do we know? Madison tended to record his own speeches in excruciating detail. That's because he wrote them out in advance, so it was relatively easy to do that. And there were plenty of people he didn't like at the Constitutional Convention, and it's quite probable that they got less than full treatment, even apart from the 20% problem. Um, there's just no way that Madison could have taken it all down. And since we start with this relatively minimal amount of information, it gets really difficult to know what they actually thought. Now, the answer that a lot of people have is that the Federalist gives us the answers. 
The Federalist, you know, written by Hamilton, Madison, and John Jay, hot off the presses immediately after the Constitutional Convention. It should be, you know, completely authoritative, and it's often taken as authoritative on various problems of constitutional interpretation. I've always found this amazing. Why would anybody think that the Federalist Papers have anything more to say than any other document? And there aren't a lot of them, obviously, as I've just said. For one thing, Hamilton really played a very small part at the Constitutional Convention, and he was gone for the last month and a half. He'd left in a huff after he gave his big speech on why we really need a monarchy rather than a republic. Um, and he'd gone back to New York, and then he came back at the very end in order to be able to sign the document. So it's hard to see Hamilton as having any inside knowledge of much of the important stuff that happened at the Constitutional Convention. Moreover, in his heart of hearts, he really didn't care for the Constitution. It was much too weak, didn't provide for the kind of executive that he wanted, it didn't do things like abolishing the states, which he was also in favor of, so on. So from Hamilton's point of view, the Constitution was second best, to say the least. But that's also true of Madison. When James Madison, the alleged father of the Constitution, sat down to write a letter to Thomas Jefferson, who was in France at the time as the American minister to the French court, when he sat down to write this letter to Jefferson immediately after the convention was over in September, of 1787, he said it's a failure. This will never work. It's just totally wasted, you know? Uh, and why was that so? Because it didn't adopt any of Madison's favorite plans. And Madison had gone into the convention with a very clear idea of what the Constitution had to have. And again and again and again, the convention had rejected Madison's ideas. So no wonder he was disappointed in this document. And then the question is, how come he, you know, then sits down and writes the Federalist and, you know, saying this is the greatest thing since sliced bread, as does Hamilton? And the answer, in part, is that they realized they couldn't get anything better. So they came up with the best ideas they could uh, as to why it was actually a great thing and needed to be adopted. But there are a couple of problems with taking that view or taking uh, the Madison and Hamilton view since... Jay didn't really write very much, only five of the numbers, as authoritative. And it needs to be remembered that they did this on their own. They were complete volunteers when it came to writing the Federalist Papers. No one authorized them to do this. No one at the convention said, and now that we're going to be engaged in this ratification campaign, we want you, James Madison, and you, Alexander Hamilton, to write a series of essays which will express the authentic views of the convention on what this document means. They took this on themselves. And while they may not be wrong uh, about many things, there was no authorization to do this. So there's no sense in which it could be described as a, an authorized and authentic exposition of what the Constitution means. The other point to remember is that Madison not only changed his ideas in 1787 when he decided, well, we can't get anything better, so I'm going to you know, work hard on this, uh, getting it adopted and so on. He changed his ideas again after 1787. And a lot of you will probably have been exposed to Federalist 10. Any of you been exposed to Federalist 10? 
Yeah, that's the one that says that parties are bad and so on. Within a few years after that, by 1792, Madison was writing essays in the Philadelphia newspapers saying parties are good and my party is the only one that you should belong to. I mean, the guy <laughs> does have a habit of rethinking, that's the polite way to put it, rethinking issues and changing his mind. So it's very hard to say that, you know, the Madison of the Federalist is the final view of, uh, that Madison had about much of anything. And why should we then take that as this authentic exposition? The result of comments like this and others is that it's very difficult to know on most of the issues that really matter just what exactly was going on at the convention and what exactly people thought. Fortunately, there is a publication project uh, that's now nearing completion called the Documentary History of the Ratification of the Constitution that's being done in Madison, Wisconsin at the Wisconsin State Historical Society by John Kaminsky and his colleagues. And this is collecting all the information that we've got. Every letter that was written about the ratification process and what people thought, every newspaper article, all the transcripts of the state ratifying conventions where they exist, so on and so forth. And the result of this project, which again is now nearing completion, is that there's a much fuller record than there was back in the old days when only Madison's notes and the Federalist seemed to be available and nobody paid any attention to anything else. It's not clear that Justice Scalia actually consults this set on a regular basis or that you know, judges are actually paying attention to these developments. Why should they? It's only historians who are you know, producing this stuff. But we, we do have a better chance of thinking about it. And more importantly, we have a better chance than we've had in the past of thinking about what people did at the state ratifying conventions. Here's a very important idea that Madison actually uh, suggested consistently, and in this case he doesn't change his mind, and that is that the original intent that matters is not the intent of the drafters of the Constitution, but it's the intent of the people who ratified the Constitution. So what really matters is the way in which people understood the document at the state ratifying conventions. They're the ones who voted on it. They are the we the people, in effect, of the preamble to the Constitution. And if they understood something in a certain way, or they were assured that such and such was the proper interpretation, then at least according to Madison and some other people, it, that's more important than what was actually said at the Constitutional Convention, because if, if we're just talking about you know, some ideas that people had at the convention and that they never really expressed and so on and so forth, so all those secret meanings were adopted by people without knowing about them, and that's what's actually supposed to bind us 220-some years later, that, that's a really iffy kind of idea. And Madison, even back in the early 1800s, recognized that, which is why he insisted on the ratifying conventions as the key. You were just doing the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, and if this is a problem with the Constitution of 1787, it's even more so a problem with the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. Most of the argumentation about what the amendments mean, especially the 14th Amendment, 
derives from the congressional debates and what was said in the Senate and so on and the House. And it doesn't really address the question of what people at the state ratifying conventions thought about this document. So today, for example, there is a debate, which is rather lively in some circles, about whether uh, the natural born citizens provision of the 14th Amendment includes people who are the children of illegal aliens. And depending on, I, this will strike you as too bizarre for words, but depending on how you read a comma, and what you think that comma means, in a statement that Senator Howard of Michigan issued in the middle of the debates in the Senate about the 14th Amendment, you can come up with a case that says that the amendment was not intended to cover the children of illegal aliens. The Supreme Court has never held that that's the case, and uh, it's unlikely now, I think you know, that's really an issue despite present uh, concerns that's been settled by a course of practice over the last hundred and some years. So I'm not sure that even if we agreed that that strange comma in Senator Howard's speech has any meaning, we'd go back to the previous position of, or at least the alleged position of Senator Howard that uh, illegal aliens uh, or the children of illegal aliens don't count. But, but there are those kinds of problems out there, and nobody knows what the state ratifying conventions had to say about who was the natural born citizen subject of the 14th Amendment. That, those questions have really not been explored at all, and so the whole history of the 14th Amendment is, is something that's sort of out there. When Brown against Board of Education, which is an excellent example of a living constitution in practice, was being decided the justices were really worried about what the 14th Amendment had to say about school segregation, and they had an awful lot of legal research done on this issue. And the legal research, frankly, showed that nobody thought that school segregation was a problem in 1865, 1866, 67, 68, when these amendments were being decided, that uh, the same Congresses that were passing um, these amendments and sending them out uh, were also uh, segregating schools in the District of Columbia, so on and so forth. So what happened? You know, if you went according to original intent, Plessy against Ferguson would still be on the books. And the Supreme Court decided that it would not do that, that it had to change, that this was a pressing issue that demanded a different approach from the one that had been taken before. And so in the opinion in Brown against Board of Education, there's not a word about what the framers of the 14th Amendment thought. They just bury that issue completely. And it's interesting that all these judges and justices and so on who are big on um, original intent come to a sort of grinding stop when you say Brown against Board of Education. They all know that it's not justified in terms of original intent. They all know that they can't say that it's a wrong, improper, unconstitutional decision. So that even the ones who are most adamant about doing things according to original intent are willing to sort of bow in the face of at least some decisions that uh, are simply too important to overturn, too fundamental to the way Americans understand their society and their constitution to be repudiated in the name of this original intent idea.
there are enough cases like that in the 20th century, certainly, that one can see that when push came to shove, the court has always accepted the notion that the Constitution has to be capable of changing over time, of meeting new demands in new circumstances, and that the idea of original intent, interesting though it may be, is not something that can be allowed to override the kinds of pressing necessities that we're faced with. In other countries, they have other ways of dealing with this problem, one of which is that they get rid of their old constitutions and write new ones. We don't do that in the United States. We have this fetish about the 1787 document. It's too sacred to be touched, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Thomas Jefferson, my man, the, the one whom I study, thought this was nonsense, but then he wasn't there at the Constitutional Convention. And he insisted that you had to have a new constitution every 19 years. And how did he get that number? Well, he was a kind of kook when it came to numbers and so on. He was a sort of obsessive compulsive about calculation and whatnot. And he figured out that the life of a generation is 19 years. And he used a lot of actuarial data. It wasn't completely made up. So at the end of every 19 years, he said, half of those who were alive when the uh, Constitution was adopted will be dead and will be replaced by new people. So that Constitution no longer has a majority support. You have to actively approve the Constitution for it to be legitimate, according to Jefferson. And when there's no longer a majority of people who approve the Constitution, it's no longer in force, no longer has moral uh, value, et cetera, et cetera. So every 19 years, there should be a new constitution. This has not been well received as an idea, to say the least. It was one of the things that Jefferson actually felt extremely strongly about and kept urging on all his friends. Madison was horrified when Jefferson wrote him this long letter proposing this idea, because he'd just been through the ratification struggle, and the idea of having to do it every 19 years was amazing to him. But the notion that you're stuck with the same document that originated in 1787 requires at least a little thought. Again, other countries don't do that. Other countries get new constitutions, and it's not the end of the world to get a new constitution. When I suggest to people uh, I know that um, something might be done in the way of changing the Constitution, or perhaps a new one, God forbid, um, I get all these horrified looks. People are afraid of doing anything about the Constitution. And I'm always told, well, if you did that, the first thing to go would be the Bill of Rights. No one would ever agree on the Bill of Rights again. If we don't stick with what we've got, um, we're going to lose it forever. And that's an interesting um, statement. It always comes from people like me who are academics and so on um, and have quite strong feelings about these issues. That They're afraid of democracy in a very interesting kind of way. They don't trust people, which is why there is so much reluctance to think about uh, the possibility of constitutional change through a popular means in this country. And that's a rather sad thing, I tend to think. Um, you know, the country was not founded on the notion that you couldn't do these things. Um, it may have become that way over time for various reasons, but it does mean that we've lost something 
in our notion of what popular sovereignty means and what the role of the people in government is if we're not willing to trust the people with making these kinds of decisions. You could argue that, you know, there are too many people now, you know, you can't really do this with, you know, the hundreds of millions of Americans that we have. Um, and yet I'm not sure whether that's true. I'm not even sure that uh, new uh, technological devices of, uh, you know, electronic sort would make a more uh, vibrant national conversation possible uh, on these subjects. And it's certainly the case that people have ideas about these things. You see this on the web all the time. But somehow, you know, letting people actually get at that document um, is just not going to work. And in the meantime, we're stuck with Article 5, which provides for these extremely high barriers to making any changes at all that way, almost necessitating an activist judiciary because we, we don't allow ourselves a way of changing the document itself that actually works very often. I heard Justice Scalia talk a couple of years ago at the Columbia Law School. And one of the interesting points he made, and he's one of those people who is willing to make any interesting point that pops into his mind. One of the interesting points he made was how easy it was for a tiny minority of people to block a constitutional amendment because all you need is a majority in one house of a state legislature and that will block that state from ratifying. So let's take New York, where the Senate is now in the hands of the Republicans and the uh, uh, Assembly is in the hands of the Democrats. All you would need, say, to use uh, um, something as an example, would be for the Republicans in the state Senate to say no, which would be like two more than the, the uh, uh, Democrats in the state Senate. And that small group of people could block say the ERA or something like that from being approved, even though all those people who voted for all those other members of the legislature uh, were all in favor of it. And that, that is you know, troubling. That means that the chances for constitutional change in the amendment way are very few and far between. The 27th Amendment, some of you may know, right? What's the 27th Amendment? Yeah. Okay, when was that amendment proposed? Yeah. Yeah, no, it was proposed with the other amendments in the Bill of Rights in 1789. And uh, it's just hung out there, waiting for enough states to ratify. So that one we actually got because some graduate student figured out that it hadn't been ratified yet and made it his personal campaign convince state legislatures to ratify this amendment. So after 220 years or whatever, it finally was ratified. And there's, there's some others, like there's one on titles of nobility and so on, that are also hanging out there that could be ratified any day now. But meanwhile, amendments that actually have some importance, like ERA and so on, died on the vine because amendments are now provided with deadlines. You have to ratify by X or it's no longer valid. And the fact that that kind of amendment, which actually reflects uh, a lot of social changes and social movements in the past 30 years, uh, couldn't get through. And this nonsense about raising salaries and so on could, says a lot about what the possibilities of constitutional change through the amendment process are. So without the ability of courts, basically, and presidents, 
because I haven't talked at all about presidents, but they make these changes too um, in the imperial presidency of the current age without the ability of those actors to change the way the Constitution is understood and interpreted, we'd be in major trouble. So the living Constitution is sort of like, you either have the living Constitution or we all die on the vine. Uh, maybe that's a little too grim. But it wouldn't work well unless somebody was able to do something about the document and make sure that after 220 years, it was still capable of responding to current day problems. So I'll quit and ask if there are any questions.